Well, let's go ahead and let's uh, start with a word of prayer, and then we'll spend some time in the, in the word this morning. Let's pray. Dear Father, we thank you so very much for your son, Jesus Christ, who is our truest friend, our most loyal friend, the one who died so that we might live, the one who is full of grace and truth. We're so very thankful that you have caused us to see the light of your son, Jesus Christ, and we ask that we would praise and worship him and praise and worship you, empowered by your spirit. We ask that as we spend this time this morning in your word, that you would be honored and glorified by everything that is said, everything that is thought, and everything that is done. We thank you so very much in your son's name. Amen. What delights God? That's a, that's a really big question. What delights God? What, what does God find delight in? What, how, how, does, how does one please God? That's a really important filter that we as believers need to develop. That, that first filter, what, what pleases God? And like a, like a good filter, asking that question will catch a lot of thoughts, a lot of intentions. It'll catch a lot of desires. It'll catch a lot of those bad desires and won't let us live out those desires, right? Just simply asking the question, what would God be pleased with? It also would allow a lot of good things to happen as well, right? I mean, it would, it would transform how we think. It would transform how we live. It would stop a lot of things, and, and there would be a lot of things that we would push forward on. This past year, past year and a half, uh, we asked that question a lot. Probably not as much as we should have, but, but we still asked that question. What, what would God want for us? How would God be delighted? And I imagine that there's a lot of other filters that we could put in there as the first filter that would skew our answers and skew the way that we think about certain subjects. Now, we could debate on whether they're good filters at all, but I'm not concerned with that, and I'm sure there's a lot better minds that can deal with those secondary filters. This morning, I am concerned with that primary filter, that first filter that the believer should ask, what delights God? This morning, we're going to talk about that question. What delights God? I am by no means going to say everything that delights God. But I want to get to the core. I want to, ask, I want to try to attempt to answer the basic answer, give you a basic answer of the delight of the omniscient God. What does the omniscient God delight in? And so this morning, go with me to the book of Proverbs, chapter 15. It is my desire to go from verses 8 through 11. But that might not be what happens. So um, let's just go to Proverbs 15, and let's just start in verse 8. That's okay. I like his voice better than mine. The sacrifice of the wicked is an abomination to the Lord, 
but the prayer of the upright is his delight. Now, we discussed this last week, and I really thought it was important to include this verse again in this section. It's important to talk about this verse again. In Proverbs 15, 8. Notice the shocking statement that starts off here in verse 8. The sacrifice of the wicked. Now, in the book of Proverbs, reading through this, you would not expect that phrase, the sacrifice of the wicked. You would assume that it would be speaking of the sacrifice of the righteous, the sacrifice of the wise, right? That's what you would expect when you see the word sacrifice. You would expect it being stated in a good light. But here you find the sacrifice of the wicked. So a wicked person is doing a sacrifice, which immediately asks you, what is that sacrifice? Is that, is that referring to the sacrifice that is uh, recorded in the book of Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, that sacrifice that the Jews were supposed to give? Are we talking about an idolatrous sacrifice? What kind of sacrifice? I would say due to the audience and due to the, the flow of the book, it's probably best to assume that Solomon here is thinking of the Levitical priesthood sacrifices, those sacrifices that, a, that a, a Jew would go to the temple and would offer up those sacrifices. I, I'm just going to assume that that's probably the best in what he's talking about here, although the statement does make sense if he's talking about a f- wicked person giving a sacrifice to an idol, Okay. Then the next question is, not only what is that sacrifice, but why would a wicked person give a sacrifice? You ever think of that? Why would a wicked person want to give something to God? What's his angle? What's he trying to do? Now, here there's not a lot said, so we're going to... I'm just going to muse for a moment of what possibly a wicked person could be thinking in giving something to the Lord. A wicked person here would probably be defined as those who are not not seeking a relationship with the Lord. It is likely that the wicked person is trying to get something from God or to appease God. This is not a sacrifice from obedience. This is not a sacrifice from faith. This would be a sacrifice that is not trying to draw one closer to God, but rather it would seem as if the wicked would be trying to get something from God. We know that this is the case from numerous passages where people would sacrifice, and even like in Psalm 51, the psalmist talks about the Jews as they would sacrifice. There was the, in, there was the insinuation that they were giving sacrifice because they thought that God was like one of the pagan gods who needed to eat. And so they would give him something to eat through their sacrifice. And that's what, that was what was happening. When they put it on the fire, he was eating it because he was just like us. And God then later on in that chapter says, I will speak against you, foolish ones, because you assumed I was just like you. So the sacrifice of the fool would be bad theology. We know that numerous people give sacrifices, even in our own day, simply to appease God. God's angry. We need to make sure that he's not angry, so I give him a gift as to change his disposition towards me. Or maybe someone just assumes that just simply the act of sacrificing itself is the righteous act and that God merely expects someone to just give something. 
that sacrifice, that is righteousness in itself, giving up of something. Regardless, we know that this is the sacrifice of the wicked. And notice what God, how God views this. He hates it. It's an abomination to him. This very thing is an abomination. Now, as I mentioned last week when commenting on this verse, you would assume that the second part of the proverb would be, but the sacrifice of the upright is a delight to the Lord. That, that, that's kind of the insinuation you would read. But that's not what Solomon points out. Notice that he points out the prayer of the upright is his delight. Which made me think, what's the difference between sacrifice and prayer? What would be that difference? One's giving something. The other one would be, what, talking? Having a conversation with? Right? One's dealing with one thing of, of the worshiper offering up something. The other one is a worshiper talking to God. And I think that would be the primary difference here between a sacrifice and prayer is that a prayer seems to be one that's seeking fellowship with God. It's something that would be done out of faith, right? It's the prayer of an upright person. This is done in faith. We know that anything that's not done by faith is sin. It demonstrates humility If it is true that the sacrifice of the wicked is trying to game the system, trying to manipulate God so that you give me what I want when I give you this particular sacrifice, if that's what the wicked person is doing, then prayer would then be the opposite. I don't know what to do, but I'm waiting for you to give me direction and leading you, waiting for your leading. It's, it's, a, it's a step of, all right, I'm going to follow your lead. The other one is, I'm trying to trick you, manipulate you, get what I'm trying to get. The other one says, I want to do what you want me to do. I'm trusting you. I'm trusting you with the future. I'm trusting you with the outcome of this. I'm not trying to manipulate anything. I, I, I want what you have for me. And it would seem then that the prayer of the upright would be one that's from the heart, that knows God, that comes in humility, and would be on the basis of faith. And therefore, it is for this reason that the prayer of the upright is his delight. Now, just think about this. Think about how we normally think about people in church. Normally, we think that the guy that sacrifices the most is the most spiritual person in the room. This verse may illuminate the fact that just because someone sacrifices a lot does not mean that God is pleased with the sacrifice. It is possible for somebody to give a sacrifice with the wrong motive. It's possible for somebody to think that my sacrifice is somehow manipulating, that my sacrifice somehow will make me look better. And you would say, who would do that? I think maybe the better question would be, who wouldn't do something like that? We, were, we have numerous examples in the Bible of people doing this with their sacrifices. We have an example in like Acts 5. Remember Ananias and Sapphira? When the church, when there was people, they were selling all of their property out of the love for their heart or for their love for their brethren. And as they, were, as they sold the property, they just gave the money to the church to help the poor. And, and it was a great thing. It was a great act of love, a great act of faith. But then there was these two people, this married couple, and they decided to sell a piece of property, 
keep back some of the money for themselves and then lie to the church and say, we did the same thing everyone else was doing. We sold our property. Here's all of the proceeds from that. But they kept some back. Now, I don't think it would have been wrong for them to go in front of the church and say, we sold the property and we're giving half the money to the church. I don't think the sin was that they kept back some of the money. The sin was that they lied about it and pretended to be something that they were not. We're doing something more spiritual and we're lying about it so that people saw them in a different light. So to suggest that there's never a possibility for someone inside of the church to ever give a gift with ulterior motives or sacrifice with ulterior motives is foolishness. On the, on the flip side, here you have the prayer of the upright as his delight. That's not necessarily something that can easily be seen. Remember Jesus, when he's talking to the disciples about prayer, what does he say? He says, go up into the upper room where nobody sees you except for the Father, and there offer up a prayer that that's pleasing to him because it's one who wants to have fellowship with the Lord. It's one who is doing something out of sheer love and respect and and awe for Jesus Christ, for the Lord. They they want to know the Lord more. It's about their relationship with him. The Pharisees did not do that. The Pharisees stood on the street corners, and what did they do? They had these huge, loud prayers so that everybody would see. They would lengthen. They would lengthen all the different things that would hang off of them, the little symbols of their righteousness. There's even indication in the New Testament these people would put on makeup to make themselves look like they haven't eaten in a long time and look at their great sacrifice for the Lord that they're not eating so that people would go, wow, spiritual people there. Spiritual people. Hypocrisy is rampant. It was rampant back then and it's rampant now. And this verse slices through and gets to the heart and says, look, it's about trust it's about that relationship with the lord it's about doing things out of sheer love for the lord and and not and not anything else it's an interesting passage right the sacrifice of the wicked is an abomination but the prayer is the of the upright is his delight he delights in the prayer of the upright he delights in the prayer of the person who has the right kind of heart now solomon goes on notice what he says in verse 9 he says the way of the wicked is an abomination to the lord so their sacrifice is an abomination And the way that they live their life is an abomination. Now, if there is a connection between verses 8 and 9, which there's a really good chance there is, we could say that it's possible that the person in verse 8 is also the same person in verse 9, the same wicked person, and the same wicked person who offers up a sacrifice, that the offering up of bad sacrifices is his way. This is the way he lives. This is the way he thinks about God. This is his theology. Normally when we see the word wicked, we think of the absolute worst person we could think of. Like that one person that we met, that we go, that's the worst person I've ever met in my life. And every time we see the word wicked, we go, that's that guy. That's the wicked guy. Here, the image that you might get if you read verse 8 and 9 together is that the wicked guy is not necessarily the most vile person you've ever met, but could be somebody that you might even walk into church with. Because, because there's this hypocrisy. There's, there's, this, there's this air. There's this, 
I'm giving something for the wrong reasons. I'm motivated by the wrong things. My outside does not match the inside. And so this is an abomination to the Lord. Their their very way is, is an abomination. They're going against the word, going against the law, going against the character of God. God hates this. Regardless of how big or how little, when you, when you go the way of wickedness, it's wicked and God hates it. He hates sin. He hates it in all of its forms. Big, little, round, square, whatever kind of moniker you want to use to describe that sin, he hates it. He hates it all. There's nothing about it that he goes, that's okay. Now, once again... When you're reading these Proverbs and you're thinking of the parallelism, if you read the first part, and I kind of had this tendency, when I read that verse 9, the first part of verse 9, and I saw the word but, my mind automatically said, okay, well, if the way of the wicked is an abomination, well, then the way of the righteous, then is his delight. But notice that he changes it once again. And he kind of hits you with a little bit of a curveball here, right? But he loves one who pursues So notice this, the first part, he hates the lifestyle of the wicked. But verse 9, but he loves the one who pursues righteousness. You go, why why do that? Why change the way of one person? He hates the way, but then he loves the person. I I think there's a couple insinuations. Number one, it doesn't mean that the person in the second part, the one who pursues righteousness, is sinless. We're not talking about sin here. We're not talking about the amount of someone's sin. We're talking about the condition of someone's heart and what they're pursuing, their desires, their goals, their relationship with the Lord. That's what really matters. Sometimes we just think of wickedness as he has racked up more sins, quantity, than me. Therefore, so-and-so is obviously worse than me. But this passage says, no, he loves the one who pursues righteousness kind of giving the insinuation that even the one who pursues righteousness will sin. And in thinking of David, or thinking of Solomon, who didn't write in a vacuum, right? He had father and mother and brothers. He saw this firsthand. He saw his father, who was one who pursued the Lord, do some pretty rank sins, pretty, pretty overt disobedience. So it's possible for somebody to be righteous, to pursue righteousness, and still sin. Also demonstrates a relationship. The one is a way. It's the the lifestyle of one. But the Lord has a relationship with the person who pursues. Right? It's, it's, It's a personal relationship. Notice that this person is the one who is pursuing righteousness. And the question is, what does this look like to pursue righteousness? I would say, ultimately... To pursue righteousness would start with pursuing the one who is righteous. Go with me just quickly to to the book of Psalms and the 11th Psalm. The 11th Psalm, and we'll just go to verse 7. Here, David is is talking about how the Lord is his refuge, how the Lord is enthroned in heaven, how the Lord is looking on the sons of men. And as he's talking about men, and he's talking about men of violence, he's talking about 
how, how the Lord also is the one who's the judge. And, and verse 7, which is the end of the psalm, kind of explains and sums it all. Why can, why can the Lord on the one hand be David's refuge and then on the other hand be the punisher of men? Why is the Lord uniquely qualified to do both of those? And you see in verse 7 why the Lord is qualified. For the Lord is righteous. He is the embodiment of righteousness. He is the example of righteousness. He is the definition of righteousness. To be righteous and to pursue righteousness is to pursue the one who is himself righteous. Now, when we talk about righteousness, it's kind of an interesting word, interesting word to, uh, to define. Righteousness means to adhere to the right standard and to do the right things. So it deals with being. I am in the right. I have the right way of thinking. I'm adhering to the right ethical, moral standards. And that I'm also doing those things as well. It's possible for somebody to have the right ethical and moral standards and transgress against those, and that's not righteousness. It's also possible for somebody to have a skewed view of the right moral and ethical standards and do things which are consistent with the right moral and ethical standards. And we would say, but that person is not technically righteous because it's at adhering to a standard. When dealing with the Lord himself, we wouldn't say that there's some standard outside of God that God adheres to because if that was the case, then that standard would then be the authority for us. God would cease to be the standard. And then we would have to then go to that standard. And then the immediate question would be, well, if the Lord appeals to a standard outside of himself, who established that standard? The one who established that standard would then be the Lord. So the Bible, I think, is very clear in the Lord and defining himself. And when he talks about himself, the Lord says, I adhere to myself. I adhere to my own character. And I do the things that my character drives me to do. So when God is righteous, that means he is consistent in himself. And he does consistently who he is. And the things that he declares to do. He is the standard of right and wrong. He himself. He sets that standard. He adheres to the standard of himself. And the things that he does, those are righteous because he's the righteous standard. So for us, we would then say, well, then ultimately, righteousness for the believer would be, I adhere to God's character, and I do the things that God would do. In the New Testament, we call this being Christ-like, right? I mean, the New Testament spends a lot of time talking about Christ-likeness, adhering to the standard of who Christ is and doing the types of things that Christ would do. That's righteousness, There's one other thing that I find really interesting in verse 7. It says, for the Lord is righteous, so he's the embodiment of righteousness. He's the example of righteousness. He's the definition of righteousness. But then it says, he loves righteousness. Just thinking about this. I'm not 100% sure I've really met someone who really loved righteousness. Now, don't get me wrong. I've met plenty of people who love being right. And, I love, and I've known plenty of people who love the fact that they think they're in the right. I've met some people who have had a, a standard of, no, we're going to do what's right. We're going to do what the Lord wants. 
But there's, in some way, there's, there's a wavering at some point. At some, at some point in their life, there's, there's a wavering. And, 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 and even, even the most humble believer would say, yeah, I, in theory, I love righteousness and I want to be righteous. In practice, I'm not 100% sure my life demonstrates that I really am passionately loving, wanting to be right and pursue that. The Spirit's working on me. The Lord's working on me. Each day I'm becoming better at this. But, but to, to love righteousness... The Lord loves righteousness. He is passionate about his own character and passionate about the things that he does. And him adhering to himself and doing what he does and loving rightness, it is something that when we deal with the Lord and his love for what is right, what is proper, what is appropriate, Appropriate, what is ethical, what is moral, his love to adhere to that standard is off the charts compared to any human. We, we don't know anybody who loves rightness, goodness, like he does. So when we talk about him being righteous, we're not just saying, this is who I am. We're talking about somebody who says, this is who I am, and I am passionately this. This is, this is one of the things that motivates me on what I do, on how I portray myself. I love what is right. I love what is good. If we're, if we're going to pursue righteousness, it has, to start, it has to start with God himself who is righteous, and it would be loving and pursuing righteousness the way that God also pursues righteousness and loves righteousness, right? It, not that he pursues righteousness in the sense that he doesn't have it to attain it, but the sense that he loves righteousness and loves the exp- the. the the doing of righteous acts, you and I should have that type of love. That's the standard that we are reaching towards of loving what is right and what is good. It starts there. Now, there's another aspect to pursuing righteousness, and we kind of need the help of the New Testament in the second part, because to pursue righteousness becomes very clear in reading the scriptures. We can't. I can't be righteous. It's impossible for me to be righteous. I'm devoid righteousness. The only way that I can be righteous is if it's given to me. And the Bible teaches that man is alienated from God. There's nothing he can do to be right with God. But it's out of God's great love, grace, and mercy that he sent Jesus Christ to come and die on the cross for our sins. He died, he was buried, he rose again on the third day. We place our trust solely on the personal work of Christ. And when we do that, what does the scriptures teach? That at that moment, instantaneously, we're accredited with the righteousness of Christ. Paul, in dealing with people who believed in something different, that they believed that I can work hard enough to create my own righteousness, and that my own righteousness will then, God will then say, well, that's good. That's good. You have self-righteousness. And they taught that that's what you need to do. The Apostle Paul completely argues against it and defeats it. And one of those clear passages is Philippians 3. Philippians 3. He does it other places, but this is one of my favorites. And because I have the microphone, we're going to my favorite version. <laughs> Philippians 3.1. He says, Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same thing again is no trouble to me and a safeguard to you. Verse 2. Beware of the dogs. Beware of the evil workers. 
Beware of the false circumcision. So there's this threat that could happen to the church of Philippi. And this threat is known as the false circumcision. It's those who are teaching you need to establish your own righteousness to be right with God. The apostle Paul says, look, we're actually the real circumcision, the church. Because we put no confidence in the flesh like these false circumcision does. And Paul says, look, even if somebody could, I could. And the apostle Paul If anybody could have put up their own righteousness that would surpass the human righteousness of anybody else that's ever existed, the Apostle Paul would be on the top of our list of one of those really good guys that might be able to do it. But even in that, the Apostle Paul realizes that I was incapable of generating my own righteousness. Because notice what he says in verse 7. He says, but to these things, but whatever was gained to me, these things... I've counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count them as a loss in the view of the surpassing value of knowing Jesus Christ my Lord, for whom I've suffered the loss of all things, and count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ. Remember when we talked about this a couple months ago, that Apostle Paul sets this up as almost that these good works, this attempt to become self-righteous, kept him from getting to Christ. That self-righteousness is a wall. It's not a gate. It's a wall, and you are separated from the Lord. You cannot get there if you're just trying to be good. And these good works and glorying in the good works keeps you from the one who can actually make you righteous. So then he says, that I may be found in him, Christ, not having a righteousness of my own derived by the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. You see that? that that's, if, if I'm going to pursue righteousness, I have, I have to deal with Jesus. And I have to have imputed righteousness. I have to have this. And even here as a believer, as I think about this passage, and I think about my life, knowing the truth, knowing the reality that I am imputed with the righteousness of Christ, that happened instantaneously at the moment that I placed my faith in Christ, that there still is that temptation to look to my own self-righteous deeds and say, maybe I had a little bit of a hand in it. Maybe I did something. There's, there's something good here. And, it, and it's only this truth that I am righteous because it's imputed to me on the basis of Christ that destroys that concept of self-righteousness causes me to repent of that act of self-righteousness and then to continue to glory in who I am because of Christ and what he's done. This is a necessary thing for us to think about on a regular basis because it helps us fight that temptation of self-righteousness because my righteousness is derived from God and imputed to me by God. And then not only is it imputed to me by God, but because of the work of the Holy Spirit on my heart, I am now able to produce righteous acts, which are really his works through me. This is the death nail to self-righteousness, this teaching of the imputation of Christ's righteousness. And so one who's going to pursue righteousness is one that's going to pursue it on the pursue God. It's going to pursue it on the basis of Christ. It's going to be one that's yielding to the power of the Spirit, that's doing the things that God asks us to do to prepare our heart as we're hearing the words of the Spirit so that there may be this production of the fruit of the Spirit. And that's righteousness. And the person that that genuinely does that, 
that seeks those things. That's the type of person that the Lord delights in. The one who's seeking a vibrant relationship with the Lord, that's seeking to be right on the basis of Christ, that's trying to be right the way that God has prescribed. And the one who's passionate about that, that's whom the Lord loves. It's not one who says, I can go my own way. It's not one who thinks he can assume to do whatever he wants. It's the one who follows the word and comes to God saying, I'm spiritually bankrupt and it's only because of you that I can do anything right and I'm here, I'm humble, and I'm yielding. I'm, I'm, I'm obedient and I'm stepping out in faith. Now Solomon in his mind is thinking about this abomination and he thinks about the one who's wicked and he says maybe two of the saddest verses in the book of Proverbs. Notice what he says in verse 10. He says, Grievous punishment is for him who forsakes the way. He who hates reproof will die. Sheol and Abaddon he opens, or is open, lies open before the Lord. How much more the hearts of men. You see that verse 10 and then the first part of verse 11? that grievous punishment he talks about. You see, those, you see those describers that he uses? Death, he uses the word Sheol. Abaddon, he uses those words in connection with grievous punishment. This is dealing with much more than what can happen here on the earth and the Lord's punishment here on earth. By using these words in combination, he is talking about something that happens when someone passes who is not righteous. It's a grievous punishment. This one is, who's under the punishment, why is he there? Because he's gone the wrong way. The things that he's doing, he's not doing out of faith. He doesn't want to seek the Lord. His sin is a, is a direct offense against the character of God, the way of God. And this God who loves what is right, what is good, what is ethical, what is just, must punish. Must punish sin. He's the only one, by the way, qualified to accurately and efficiently punish sin. I read this verse, and it makes me very thankful of Jesus, who suffered that grievous punishment on my behalf. Who died for me. Who took that punishment for me. So that I don't have to go through this. But it makes me very sad for my loved ones, and my neighbors, for the town, for the county, for the state, for my country. They will suffer a grievous punishment because they forsook the way. And it's not because the Lord hasn't said anything to him, because notice the next phrase, he who hates reproof will die. The Lord offers reproof. He offers correction. He, 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 his hand, as Isaiah says, his hand is outstretched saying, whoever come, come, come. Come buy for me the thing that's already paid for. The reproof is there. And notice then he says, look, the afterlife shield in Abaddon lies open before the Lord. That very thing that you and I, we take on faith that it exists. None of us have ever taken a bus tour to Sheol. You might have thought you did, but you never have. We take it by faith that there's this 
place that when the, those who are not right with the Lord, when they die, that they will go to this intermediate state where they will suffer conscious punishment. There's no place of repentance for them. And then they will stand before the great white throne judgment. And God will judge them, whether their name is found in the book of life and on the deeds that they have done. And then they will be thrown into the lake of fire where they will eternally experience the conscious wrath of God. They will consciously understand the wrath of God. They won't repent. I think they'll become more entrenched in their false theology. They will, they will shake their fists at God. Nevertheless, it's a reality. And we take it on the basis of faith. And that thing that I take on the basis of faith is the very thing that God sees right now. All of those who are in Sheol, in this holding tank, he sees them right now. All of those who have passed and have gone on, and they're even in the presence of the Lord, he sees them. I take it on faith that they're there. He sees it. He sees that thing that we know exists, but he, he, he understands it as a reality. So if he sees that, then notice the next part of verse 11. How much more the hearts of men, you realize... He sees it all. He knows it all. He knows what everyone's thinking. He knows it. So what makes God qualified to offer such a grievous punishment to those who forsake Christ? For those who walk away from the reproof, what makes him qualified? He is righteous, he is just, and he's all-knowing. So how do you please one who knows everything? How do you do that? Well, here... It seems like it is a result of God's work on our heart that he changes our heart so that when I offer a prayer to him, it's not trying to manipulate him, but it's done out of faith. That I pursue him because he's called me and he's beckoned me. And at least, I don't know about you, but for me, it's been more like he grabbed me by the hand and as I fell on the ground flopping saying, I don't want to go, he drugged me. And then as I continued to fight, then he picked me up and said, you're coming with me whether you like it or not. And then I slowly then say, okay, I'm willing to follow. Still fall on the ground, you know, because I'm a sinner. But it seems to be only because of God's grace that anyone can pray and it be a delight. And it's a basis of God's grace that anyone can pursue righteousness. Now, I don't want you to misunderstand me. And, and, and as I was thinking about some of the things I said, maybe it's possible that some of you go, Caleb, are you suggesting that we shouldn't give, we shouldn't sacrifice, we shouldn't do things? No, 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 no. Please do not get me wrong. I, I'm not saying that the, that the act of sacrificing is wrong. I'm not saying that somebody cannot sacrifice because they love the Lord and they're dedicating this to the Lord because they, because they love him and they love brothers and sisters and they want to do this. I'm not saying that good works are bad. I'm not calling that out, and I don't want that to stop. I want that to increase. I pray for that to increase. What I think this passage is pointing out, and I want, what I want you to understand, is that I'm saying hypocrisy has to stop. That we have to have a right definition of righteousness and righteous action. That's the call. Not to stop doing good deeds, but to start doing authentic good deeds and to stop all of the bad deeds that we think are good. I'm saddened uh, at the hypocrisy in my own life of the times that I pretended to be more spiritual <laughs> than I am. Uh, I, I'm saddened by the hypocrisy that I hear from friends. I'm 
horrified at the hypocrisy of the American church at large, that it seems like many churches have gone out of their way to create a culture of hypocrisy, to reward hypocrisy, to live out, to lay out some weird line of legalism to say, if you do this, say this, wear this, listen to this, you're righteous. Regardless of your life outside of church, just do this, stay in line, make sure you give us 10%, you're righteous. I wonder, I wonder if those who are not believers, they see some of that. And I wonder if they come to the same conclusion I've come to. That's a bunch of hypocrites. And I wonder if the gospel, the message of the gospel, is not taken serious because of the hypocrisy of believers. Now, we can't fix all of the wrong in the world. I have a tough enough time fixing all the wrong in my world, let alone the world in general. And I think the call here would be to authentically love Jesus, to authentically pursue Jesus, to spend time in his word and time in prayer. I think, I think the call would be humility. The call would be to walk by spirit. The, the, the call would be to call, out humi- to call out hypocrisy in my life and repent from it and not do it again. That's the call. Because the Lord is not delighted in just merely giving him something. The Lord is delighted when his people are acting by faith, pursuing righteousness, being obedient, following his word, loving Jesus, exalting Jesus. May the Lord give us the will and the ability to do all that we heard today. Uh, Let's go ahead and let's spend a, a little bit of time in prayer and then we'll close. Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you that you have done so much work in our life that apart from you, we are not righteous. We do not have the desire to be righteous and that it's simply because of you that we desire the righteousness that you have and you offer. We ask that you would help us become authentic, that you would help us passionately love you, to passionately follow your word, that, that we would see that the thing that delights you the most is when we're walking by faith according to your word. Help us change the way that we think about what is righteous and what is not righteous. Once again, Father, we're very thankful for today that we can think about our country and we thank you for the freedoms that we have. We thank you for the unprecedented freedoms of freedom of speech and the fact that we can worship you as we see fit. We are very aware that there are believers around the world who do not have such freedoms. And we're very thankful for the freedoms that we have. And I ask, Father, that you would give us a heart of wisdom, that we would not use these freedoms as an opportunity to sin, but that we use these freedoms in a way to promote the gospel. We would use these freedoms as a way to live righteously, to live in a way that's healthy the way that promotes you and honors and glorifies you. I thank you for this church. I thank you for the people who attend here. Very dear. And Father, I ask that you would continue to bless them. You would continue to lead them to your son. You would continue to lead them back to your word. We're very thankful, very thankful for all that you've done. In your son's name, amen.